0: And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. Here's a question. Did you know an all-bond portfolio can earn up to 6.88% yield? As interest rates plateau and eventually begin to drop, Betterment is offering the BlackRock Target Income Portfolio, a 100% bond portfolio that can be a smart alternative to cash. Here's a couple more reasons why you may want to consider BlackRock Target Income Portfolio. First, it has four different yield targets to choose from based on your preferred level of risk. Second, it's built by BlackRock, one of the world's leading asset, managers, and third, while it's still an investing product, it's generally less risky than stocks alone. But did you really hear anything after up to 6.88% yield? Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Learn more at betterment.com bonds. As of 4 19 for the aggressive target income portfolio, blended 30-day SEC yield is the weighted average of 30-day SEC yields, standardized calculation for each ETF in the portfolio, net of fees 0.25%. Does not performance, investment returns may vary. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. Betterment, not BlackRock, is responsible for its advisory relationships with clients. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It's Sunday, May 30th, and we are continuing today with our interview with Esther Perel. She is a psychotherapist, she is phenomenal. She's got this great Spotify podcast. She actually has two Spotify podcasts. The first is called, Where Should We Begin? And that is uh, four seasons already that are in the can. She's got two seasons of the How's Work podcast. And we're focusing on How's Work because I interviewed her right after she dropped the uh, second season. It's so really engaging and interesting. And basically, you sort of get to be a fly in the wall in someone's therapy session and uh, that's why I like the podcast themselves. But we get into some other issues in the next couple of parts of our interview with Esther. And one of the things that I think is interesting is that because many of us are going to continue working from home, we talk with her in this part of the interview about how to strike some balance, how to create some boundaries. And then we get into Esther's specific individual background and how that informs what she does. Here's part two of our interview with Esther Perel. There's so much that is being asked of us right now. What are some tips for managing that?
1: You know, I tend to think that when you name things properly, it gives you clarity. And when you have more clarity, you have a better sense of what you need to do. And when you have this kind of mush where everything is enmeshed with each other, it really blurs our clarity. So the first thing is we are not working from home. I've said it many times, we are working with home. And we are working in a situation at this point where all our roles have collapsed. At the same table here, I can be a mother, a partner, a teacher, a supervisor, a therapist, a podcaster, a CEO of a company, a friend. It goes on and on. And I don't leave that chair. And so it gets very, very exhausting and very blurry because there are no demarcations. We are typically people who are very much contextual. We change clothes to go to different activities. These activities come with rituals. These rituals denote a role. These roles come with meaning and it gives us a sense of who we are. At a moment like this, when it's all jumbled up, it's very, very challenging Mm. to little people and to adult people. So what to do, I think it's very important in all kinds of ways to create A, boundaries, meaning clear the table before you go to eat, even if you're going to continue work again at the same table. Two, create routines. So a routine is that I cook a meal every day. A ritual, which is the next thing, is that you elevate the routine by investing it with meaning and creativity. And now it becomes not just a meal because we need to eat, but a special dinner because we matter. And now you create a hierarchy of meanings. And that gives us an inner scaffolding to us. It brings structure, stability,
0: safety, and creativity. You know, in terms of these relationships, even people have great relationships said like, this is sucked. You know, like, I can't stand seeing this person anymore. We are sort of, sort of feel like the lights at the end of the tunnel. But I think people may have discovered some things they like about their spouse, but maybe some things they don't like about their spouse. So I'm wondering how you think this is a question I got from somebody who I told them I was interviewing you. If you are in an established relationship, what do you do if the issues that brought you together are now long in the past? I'm now not sure whether I want to stay with this person for the next 30 years after the first 30 years.
1: What do you think about that? So I will answer it in two ways because one was your question and one was this listener's question to the listener's question. It is often the case that the very things that are are initially attractive in a relationship are the things that become the source of conflict later in a relationship. The very things that will annoy you are often the backside or the extreme versions of the things that once attracted you, but they were different in any event. Pandemics and disasters are relationship accelerators. That has been long known. And that means that, to borrow from Leonard Cohen, all the cracks in a relationship will appear, and so will the light that shines through the cracks. Some people have discovered that I couldn't have done it without you. This was us at our best. And then some people basically are saying 24-7, I'm choking and when I used to leave the house and be out of the house for many hours and see other people and work, I had other sources of appreciation, other sources of validation, other people with whom to share common interests, etc. Now, I'm basically with one person who is in, supposed to become an entire village. So what to do is try as best you can, either when you're confined, either when you can leave in some ways to Keep your community alive so that you don't turn to your partner and then experience all the frustrations. Try also, when your partner does nice things, to not just say thanks for bringing the coffee, but actually there's a big difference when you say thanks for being so thoughtful, so that you actually show that the person matters, make each other matter, so that you're not just, you know, providers of tasks. But separately, back to your question, I think the really important thing is this. We all have a need for security, stability, and safety. But we also all have a need for novelty, and for change, and for surprise, and for mystery. What I call the eros side of life, the vitality, the aliveness, that side has been choked this entire year. Mm-hmm. You could not experience happenstance, serendipity, surprise, spontaneity, because any spontaneous encounter could be a spontaneous contamination. And so we've had to choke that in the name of the security that we so we looking for. We had to stay inside in order to make the outside safe again. And that is a challenge for all relationships. On some level, you would say the pandemic shows you the truth. And on some other level, you would say the pandemic shows you the truth under a pandemic. That doesn't mean it is the be all of your entire relationship either. And maybe your relationship is actually good when the context changes or good enough or Mm. it finds its place because a marriage or a relationship can either be the intimacy that exists between these two people. But it can also be a structure that allows you to then have relationships with many other people in your life it's a different definition of marriage you want to say to people you learn a lot but i'm not sure you want to take a decision based just on what happened this year especially when you've had 24 after and the question of will i do another 30 of that everybody at some point asks themselves what is the life unlived
0: you wrote on your own bio that trauma was woven into the fabric of my family history. You are the daughter of Holocaust survivors. You then marry a trauma expert. So I think you're a little bit of a glutton, but okay. Talk about how that trauma has impacted your own therapeutic journey.
1: I think that, you know, when I was writing Mating in Captivity, at one moment, I asked my husband, who at the time was running treatment center for victims of torture and political violence. And I said, when do you know if people come back? What does it look like that coming back, what you call to get over it? And we began talking, it's when you are able once again to play because you cannot play if you are in a constant state of dread and vigilance because play demands an element of unself consciousness and freedom and carefreeness. When you are able again to create because create means that you take risks. It's an active engagement with the unknown. And when you once again, able to trust. I think as a patient, I would say, and this is definitely something that came up in the pandemic. I developed what we call in our jargon, a way of being counterphobic. I go from high risk to high panic. I go from nothing can happen to everything can happen to me in a minute. And I think I live on that edge very much. And that's why I don't call myself a trauma expert because I'm actually really spending most of my time in what is the difference between being not dead and surviving, and what does it look like when people are actually alive. So that's kind of how this has affected me. I, during the pandemic, had moments of intense death anxiety. I really know what it's like to lose everything overnight. And then at the same time, I would do things that, you know, um, you would think, you know, I had zero fears, but it was always
0: short and they alternate, they're in dialogue with each other. Is that what surprised you most about the last 14 months, that, that duality, or did you always know that about yourself?
1: I hadn't lived it in such an acute way in a long time, I have to say. I really can say that I had a PTSD reaction. I knew it was history living inside of me. The degree of anxiety and fear, it was dread more than anxiety that suddenly came upon me. I was convinced and I used the vocabulary. You know, at one point I said, I will not pass the triage. I'm past 60. Now, triage is a word that has a lot of resonance in Jewish Holocaust memory. So I saw through the vocabulary that I am reliving something here that is not part of the present. As long as I was home, I basically was safe. You know, this was about staying home so that the outside side can become safe again. So there were fears that didn't belong to the current reality, but they
0: fit the fears that I had in the current reality. Okay, we have one more session. I mean, one more episode with Esther tomorrow. If you've got a question, something comes up for you about working from home, starting a new business, figuring out what to do better in your financial and emotional life, they are connected. Send us an email. It's askjill at jillonmoney.com. We're uh, ditching the old show clothes, gang. I told you after after a certain amount of time, we're done now. So we're going to just power through with our mantra. Oh, I forgot to tell people to lift someone up yesterday, so don't forget to do that. We're going to keep that up, but we are going to continue to be part of a community that really aspires to do this, to, to think about grit, growth, grace, and have some gratitude along the way. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks for listening.